Welcome back to the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast, where your host, Tristan Keelan, and his guests explore everything about data, from culture to metrics to telling quality improvement stories for the human side of analytics. So we've got the statewide level, we've got some potential goals. I want to shift our conversation a little bit now lower into this new world system that we're conceiving and quite frankly, guessing at a little bit at this point. And Nikki, I think you can really help us guide this. A lot of your agencies are delivering these services already, but let's talk about the data side. What are some of the challenges to your agencies in terms of data capture and collection and technology? And I imagine it's a range of capacity in different places. What does that range look like? Yeah, no, there never has really been a funding universal funding for nonprofits and social care to really capture data. In some cases, all the area agencies on aging have one platform where they document. Well, for the most, for the single community-based organizations out there, they've had to cobble it together. Oftentimes, they have to document four, five, six different systems, depending on where the funding's from. If it's from Grant A, they got a document in Grant A's system. Maybe they use, we did a little survey of our network members and the average uses nine systems that they have to document into. So where you talk about challenges for them just to collect that data and then how accurate is it? Are they using the same name? Some of them don't even collect data. They have a food pantry and they give to whoever comes through the door and they don't even want to know your name. What we've designed is a centralized kind of system where if you're delivering programs under our contracts and things, you just document in there. We keep it super easy. They don't have to duplicate entry, whatever. We have it all ready for them. They just go in, document that they did the service, and then we submit claims. We submit whatever we need to for what the healthcare side asks us to for the actual CBO staff. They don't have to, we're not going to have them do 10 different systems for each one of these different Medicaid programs that's coming out. But when you talk about challenges, so now when you talk about if we were going to develop a system to get the state the data, I'm glad that the state has said they're going to use the health, the regional health exchanges. I think that's a really smart idea because the clinical data is already there. And so how can we build those pipes to get it from those social care networks and get it up to the clinical and then really start to integrate it with the master patient index. I think that will be success right there. That'll be one success. If we can pull that out in the waiver and get a whole person record, I would view that as a metric of success right there. Metric of success is having the metric. Yeah. So, Scott, you've been in a lot of rooms all around the state. I'm curious if your opinion's the same, that the data is there, just not connected, or have you seen places where that data might not even be there yet? Yeah, so I would say it's that entire spectrum. No, I think that, uh, to Nikki's point, we have worked with and been in rooms with essentially small mom and pop shops. Whomever comes in, this is what happens. This is how we do it. We have nothing else that we care about except for the people that we're doing. Get the administrative burden, take that somewhere else. 
all the way to multi-million dollar organizations that have all the things and they can do it all. Are you building Medicaid? They're all of that. I think that spectrum is going to be a really interesting thing to see how it continues to allow for the things that the state wants to see happen, right? What kind of levels of redundancy are going to be exposed as far as services to Nikki's point earlier. If I go down the street and see the food pantry and then go down the street the other direction and hit a church that has some, there are lots of different ways of access and a lot of it is either anonymous or just under the radar altogether. So I think it's a little bit of all of the above. And I think that's going to be, I think one of the things that's going to be, of, I think a lot of interest is if a network is comprised of specific elements, in this case, organizations and individuals and all that, the connections between said elements aimed at a common purpose. I think it's going to be very interesting to see a lot of that networking and systems mapping to illuminate how is this working. I think the data will be a main, if not the sole way of doing a lot of that. And I think in doing so, it's going to, I think, open up a lot of eyes that I think really begin to help people ask an awful lot of questions about how are people accessing services? Who are the people? Who are the organizations? Because in a lot of the rooms I've been in, there have been a lot of aha moments of, I didn't even know you existed. Or I was literally in a room in one part of the state talking about these things. And an organization head said, we just signed a contract with you. I've never met you, but we've emailed several times. Like those kinds Mm -hmm. of realizations. And so I think that as more people make visible the Mm -hmm. elements, the connections between the elements and what common purpose they're actually aimed at, I think that's going to be the main question of what are we doing with this? Is it, is the main purpose here a funds flow methodology or is the main purpose here serving the people that need to be served? I think the data systems will allow a lot of that to finally be seen and held up and then be able to say, looking in the mirror, oh, okay, now let's ask a lot of other questions. One of the, not one of, the primary source of data for big systems is the claims. In this case, Medicaid claims. Your organization, Nikki, you do the offer the technology to collect, and then you help with the infrastructure for billing, right? So what happens if you're, to Scott's terminology, a mom and pop shop who's got some grants and running a food pantry, and and now they have to bill Medicaid for the first time? Even through these social determinant networks, what does it take? What do you have to do? Because, yeah. you know, it, before you can create the data, you have to be allowed to submit it. And what's the lift? And I'm sure pe- folks are going to have to be considering, is the juice yeah. worth worth the squeeze? Yeah. One of the nice elements on these, the new updates that Scott was referencing from July, is they really have want the social care network to be the billable entity and they don't want the CBOs to have to worry about billing. So it's all going to go through the social care network. But to your point, what will be the lift will be all the CBOs participating will need to have a compliance training. Do they all, are they have anyone providing the services will have to receive HIPAA and fraud, waste and abuse trainings, have insurance requirements, things like that. So 
at Winniac, we have a whole compliance program all ready to go. And it's pretty streamlined at this point. We've been doing it for five years. They'll also need to be trained on using documenting in our system. But our goal is to keep that administrative piece of the billing as easy as possible. So they document the process. We'll take it from there. We'll submit the claims. We'll do what we need to do to get them paid. And I really love that the state really focused on keeping it simple for the CBOs to be able to participate. But a small CBO will need to possibly change some of their practices. If they're not collecting data or they're not documenting, they might need to get trained on how to do that and so that they can participate and then have another source of sustainable funding. And then everybody's favorite topic in the healthcare world, EHRs, collecting new fields, training people on new systems. Right. Uh, we'll all have We're to have That's right. Yeah. Scott, I'm curious what you think about a situation I'm going to present here. We've got a group. We've been talking about food pantries. Let's stay there for a minute. Never build Medicaid before. Get some grants from a local foundation to stock what they're doing, deliver what they're doing. And now for the first time ever, they could provide that same service and bill it through Medicaid. What does the foundation think about, do they want them to shift? Are they going to push them to use the 1115 waiver mechanism? Are agencies going to say, this was a lot easier when the foundation just granted us the money and we didn't have to pay attention to this stuff? What is, what's that sort of in, internal conversation going to be like and what sort of thought process is going to have to play out for sure. a, a lot of young or maybe not young, but lesser infrastructure CBOs to, to jump into this whole thing. Yeah, no good question. Certainly very much depends on the relationship between all mm -hmm. those different entities. We've yeah. worked with several different philanthropic groups across the state in a lot of different capacities. So we've had a lot of conversations with foundations and other grant making bodies. And we've also worked with a lot of community-based organizations around a lot of different issues. And so I guess I would say, without painting like too much, too many broad strokes, we've had a lot of conversations with philanthropic organizations that I think are looking at their own processes and what they are measuring and recognizing that they have been giving far too many single shot grants and other things where to essentially people have said, we've built too many gazebos and fixed too many rules. And we don't have a larger systemic understanding of what it is we're actually trying to accomplish. So I think like one of the first questions between those kind of organizations was essentially, what are you trying to accomplish? What's the relationship between a philanthropic organization and a smaller CBO or any CBO for that matter? But it's been interesting to see a lot of philanthropic organizations wondering about how do we take a much more systemic approach to housing? food or whatever the case might be versus kind of one-off contracts and seeing where they go. So we've been in a lot of those kinds of conversations, which is interesting. And I think, like I said before, uh, if I were a small CBO, and I think I've, I think I've said a version of this since this waiver came out and I've spoken a lot of different places, and I think really it's the same question of like, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And then what, what is needed to do that? Some organizations are going to look at themselves and say, we are serving a very specific population, have been doing it for decades, and we don't need to build Medicaid. And that's totally fine. I think it's a recognition of 
what is it that you're actually trying to do and how you can be successful with that? Because there are going to be tons of organizations that are going to need to be a part of this conversation, like schools and governments and other things that will never build Medicaid. And that's totally fine. And I think like the bigger vision, I guess I would want to have with some of this too, is thinking about one, what's, what are you actually trying to accomplish? What's needed to do that? How do we have a much larger systemic understanding of what we're trying to accomplish through networks, organizations? But then I think too, like this kind of work should not be dependent upon the insurance card you have in your wallet. Everybody should have these kinds of things. And if that's the case, how do we leverage this kind of very specific niche Medicaid thing to all the rest of it? So I think that's a bigger question, but those are the kind of things that I think if you don't build Medicaid right now, that could be totally fine. You just need to figure out what it is that you're yeah. actually trying to accomplish. I would also add when we look at other opportunities for funding and sustainable mm -hmm. funding, it allows your existing grants for community-based organizations to be extended farther. And so it doesn't have to be this or that. It can allow for more growth or more unique services, or maybe now you can do it in a different way or advance or get more technology or whatever you need to do, but really looking at a multi-payer strategy for these CBOs and trying to help them on the business end of it, the entrepreneurial end of it, to see how they can blend and braid these funding sources to really provide more services for the folks that they want to provide it for. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think, Scott, to say that if you're not, you don't need to build Medicaid and that's totally fine, that from a data perspective is not totally fine because we don't know, right? It creates a dark... <laughs> creates this like dark zone in delivery where the right thing is happening, but it's not getting documented in the place that ties it back to the pipes, as we called them, that goes to the social care networks, that goes to the HIEs, that then yes. goes to the statewide reporting that says we did X and we got Y in return yeah. for it. So I've got to imagine that at some point, the push to connect the dots with data is going to require a push to connect the dots with the funding mechanism to push it all into one place. Yeah. So I would totally agree. I would totally agree. Yep. If that's the path that you are going after, then hundred percent. It's been interesting yeah. having conversations across the state and there being a lot of the concern about this being an effort to clinicalize social mm -hmm. care and how does that work in a world where I, I think that I, this is certainly a, a bigger conversation that if we're trying to connect the elements that are part of a system in relationships and at a common purpose, the less we can be coercive in ways, or at least that are interpreted as coercive, then actually building towards those relationships built on trust, which is a very variety of different things. I think if I've heard anything in the last couple of years in a lot of these conversations, it's a lot of how do we actually allow for trust to be built and that the work of these social care networks was actually building trust amongst all these different organizations for the sake of the people that they're serving. And so I think a lot of people, the reason why I say, if you're not going to go Medicaid, that's fine. Is you're going to think in the back of my head, sometimes that's 
heard as a twisting of the arm mm-hmm. in the sense of if you don't do this, you're never going to insist. And that might be true, but how do we do that kind of work in a way that still gives some freedom around what that could look like? Well, yeah, I'm totally with you. If we're going, like I said before, if we're going to illuminate a lot of this, it's going to come from the data. And if yeah. people are doing that work, it's never going to get seen. Nope. Yeah. You might have yeah. to sell it versus mandate it. Sure. Bring people yeah. in and then have them get something in, in return for it. Nikki, one more question on the data side, more about your network. So we're talking about collecting data that funnels up to a big statewide picture, ultimately. But in the system, in the delivery, right, in the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, like what kind of metrics do your does your social care network look like in terms of what do we do next or what should we do this week different from last week? What are some of those like operational how are we getting it done type metrics that feed the social care wheel? Yeah, so for our current system, it's really program dependent. What might be a metric on, say, a nutrition class or meal delivery would be different from a care coordination or a housing. But we have really make sure that it's person-centered. When you talk about trust, right from the beginning of developing all this, we have had folks with lived experience providing us with feedback, satisfaction surveys, whatever, and actually having their voice help us in the development and design of this so that we're not building this in a boardroom somewhere and then all of a sudden try to roll it out and then that's not what we even need or want. But so in terms of the data, to get back to your data question, this is a data podcast after all. Um, (laughs) Some of the metrics might be that the meal was delivered that's an easy one, right? This many mm-hmm. meals were delivered. This is what they wanted. But in terms of, say, care coordination, what is their, what are their needs? What are their priorities that the member wants to focus on? And then how are they, what interventions are they interested in pursuing that will be appropriate for that individual? So it really has to come down to an individual, really person-centered, focused way of delivery so that to Scott's point, if we medicalizing it would be to say, oh, they screened positive for something in housing or something in food, they need Meals on Wheels or they need this housing intervention. But we really have to make sure that we get the services to the people that they need in the right way. Is it culturally appropriate? Is it in a neighborhood they want to be served in? Do they have to drive across three counties to get it? So that's some of the ways that we track and ensure that we're delivering it to the people that need it the most. Yeah. Delivery against the treatment plan versus universal, right? We all have, we all have blood pressure, so we can all have our blood pressure measured, right? But then to say you need these five things and if we accomplish number five, when it was priority number five, we're out of order, right? And that's not an easy data capture, not at an individual level, and it's not an easy aggregatable question. We've got our work cut out for us. I'm going to pose a question as we wrap up here to each of you. Same question. Scott, why don't we start with you? Fast forward, let's say the Medicaid waiver, as we know it today, is approved today. We get off this recording, and that's what's in your inbox. Let's say two years from now, 
the headline that you want to see reads X number of this has taken place for the better. What would you hope to see as a key data point two years from today if we had the waiver? Good you, question. You don't need the actual number on it. What's the what's the headline? What's the headline? What's the headline you're looking for to know that we got things on the right track? No. The answer is four. That's right. So two years from now. So I think. Yeah, I think from a lot of the things that we have done across New York State, if there was an overwhelming majority of people who were living in safe, healthy homes and had access, um, had access to the food and nutrition that was what they were desiring, I think we would be so far ahead of the game. I think that from doing food security work up in the North country to doing housing stuff here in central New York to all these different things. If we had two years from now experimented our way into at the very least getting a lot more people access to those things, I would be very happy because we've seen those pretty up close and personal and know how just incredibly important it needed. I hope we come back two years from now and I hope we're talking about that. Nikki, same question to you. Two years from Medicaid waiver approval, what's the headline that you hope to see? New York State is seeing incredible improvements in statewide health due to their implementation of the Medicaid waiver. I think that's the moonshot that we go for and and anything under that is just, we're working on it. We're working toward it. But to your, to all of our points here, three years is a very short time to get anything really measured and done. So I, my hope is that they will see progress and see, Hey, this, the screenings are happening. Interventions are happening. Let's build on it on the next reiteration and not expect we're going to solve all the world's problems in three years. I'm hoping to see progress. I'm hoping to see a lot more CBOs coordinated and the services available for the folks. And so that that's really what I hope to see. Mm-hmm. All right. There you have it. All we need to do is collect data where there is no data, funnel it to a singular place so that we can pass it on from a regional system to a statewide system, measure it, make sure it's working, and do more of it. No big deal. We'll be there in three and a half years. So I want to thank my guests, Nikki Kaminsky and Scott Emery, for joining me today on the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast. This has been a conversation about New York State's 1115 waiver and connecting the services to the data for hopefully a brighter future for everyone. If you're not in New York State, hopefully you find this conversation around connecting clinical care to social care meaningful and are seeing similar efforts in your state, whether through Medicaid or other interventions. Thank you both and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks.